One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The types of tech that we have today would bewilder uh, anyone from 200 years ago. We're at a point right now that that same bewilderment might impact us 10 years from now. And it's remarkable. I think that AI could have the same impact on society that electricity did. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm really, really good, thank you. I've been looking forward to this one because there's so many things that we can kind of cover and dive into. You know, we, we were introduced to one another through Andy Billings, a former guest of the show. From our first conversation, it was really engaging. And I just thought it would be a great opportunity to jump on and have a more detailed discussion. But before we dive into that, I guess it's best to start in a little introduction into who you are, what you do, and why. You want the elevator pitch of who I am, just the one-liner right off the bat. yeah, yeah. So I guess in a nutshell, I would say I'm someone who's fascinated with innovation. And by that, I don't just mean technology, but I mean the the people who create something new out of nowhere and the impact that it has on society. It harks back generations in my family. And I, I think some of my forefathers, you know, my grandfathers, my father have like influenced my career path without knowing it uh, because of some of the things they've done as well. Exactly. And I think the first time we spoke, you talked a little bit more about your grandfathers and your, and also your father and their like entrepreneurial journey. So let's maybe talk about them in a little bit more detail. Yeah, it's a little interesting, actually. So I grew up in Tennessee uh, in, a, in a town just outside of Knoxville. And uh, both my grandfathers had moved to a town called Oak Ridge. And Oak Ridge was a secret town built during World War II for the Manhattan Project to actually build the atomic bomb. Neither one of them worked specifically on that, but um, you know, for many years, you couldn't find Oak Ridge on a map. They just made it in the middle of this big mud field, and they attracted uh, scientists and engineers and, and leaders there. You know, huge wealth of um, smart people came there. And my two grandfathers, actually, so one of them uh, worked at Oak Ridge National Laboratories, and he was a physicist. He actually invented some of the first lasers. I remember going to engineering conferences with him when he was in the 70s, early 70s, when he was showcasing some of the laser uh, development that he built. And I think that I get a lot of my interest in technology from him. Uh, And then on the other side, on my maternal uh, side, my grandfather was the president of AFL-CIO. So he was the president of this big labor organization obviously thinking about the care of workers, um, building things. And, and I think that a lot of my social impact and my interest in how technology affects society sort of is driven from those two people. Exactly. How was it um, in respect to like the shaping of you from a, a young age through to your college years? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was part of it. It was the, the influence of these two people. But I also went through a lot of change and innovation myself moving every year or two uh, growing up. I actually went to four high schools. I mean, I moved around quite a bit. And in every every time I moved, I used that as a point of self-reflection. You know, what did I like about the last experience? What do I want to see differently in the future? And I think that, in addition to the influence of, uh, of some of the people ahead of me, kind of helped change who I am and maybe made me a little bit more reflectory of... Um, 
who I am and, and the impact I might have in the world too. Unlike that, the college period that you had, like I remember the first time that we spoke, we talked about that crossroads moment. What influenced you towards the pathway that you ultimately took? Yeah, it's interesting because in high school, I wanted to be an architect. I actually studied architecture and drafting for four years. And um, it was the launch of the Pentium processor back in the late 80s. I was still in high school at the time. And I was convinced that computers were going to automate that process. And of course, I was wrong. They actually ended up becoming a tool that architects used. Uh, But I didn't quite know what I wanted to do uh, as an undergrad. I actually ended up studying philosophy as an undergrad with the thought that uh, that I'd I'd become a better thinker, that I'd become more well-rounded. And as I um, got towards the end of my undergrad career, I began thinking about what really drove me, what I was passionate about, and what I might want to pursue in graduate school. And at the time, I was a long-distance runner and a triathlete. Uh, This was kind of early 90s. And I became interested in human performance. And so I actually entered into graduate schools, initially studying exercise physiology. Uh, Wanted to work with uh, Olympic athletes, helping them to achieve better performance. And I was also curious on how I could help myself as well. And as I got towards the end of that graduate program, a couple things happened actually. So one is I realized that my, my, my physiology, my innate ability to exercise was really quite high, um, but I was always getting injured. I, I couldn't keep up with the the runners who were putting 70 miles in a week or the cyclists are doing 300. I, you know, I would just get injured all the time. And my natural interest shifted from physiology to biomechanics, the study of human movement. And as I began looking at that as a career path, uh, something else happened. And that was uh, PlayStation 1 launched. I think that was 1994. And so I was looking at transitioning my career out of this, you know, exercise physiology lab and, and into the biomechanical world. And I, I looked at what the, the scientists were doing to study human movement. And I looked at what the 3D graphics people were doing to visualize it. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you put the two of those things together? And actually, before I switched my graduate studies, I actually took a step back and made three 15-year career paths. What are the types of technology that could exist? What are the new jobs that might exist a decade out? Uh, and I looked at that from an engineering perspective. I looked at it from a life science. And then the last one was actually an entertainment. And once I had written this little tome, these three uh, 15-year career paths, I decided that there was ample opportunity to, to innovate and create new things and to have an enjoyable career that benefit the world in some way and went and studied uh, uh, biomechanics uh, during the day and at night actually studied 3D graphics. At the time, it was on uh, like Cray supercomputers. These were huge, you know, refrigerator plus size computers behind a glass wall in a refrigerated room. And I had an opportunity to, to study 3D graphics quite early during that time as well. Obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a while ago since you kind of mapped those out, but from maybe a reflection point now, how closely aligned to those 15-year plans are like the present day? You know, did you get those calls right? I actually, yeah, I filed that, you know, that stack of papers away and found it about 12 years later. And I, at that point, I'd actually chosen one particular career path. And I found that I was uh, directly in line with what I anticipated might happen and doing exactly the sorts of things that uh, didn't even exist a decade early earlier the the roles didn't exist um and so yeah it was it was quite interesting but it was shortly thereafter after the 15-year period that i had a little quandary of, you know what am i going to do next <laughs> what is the next thing so yeah i think you go through periods when you're when you're planning life out where you don't necessarily know what's coming next so after you finish your studies you, your next foray was into the games industry and, and film can you kind of walk over a little bit of what it was like in those early days and kind of how it evolved and also some of the projects that you got involved with yeah yeah i never actually anticipated being a media and entertainment person actually the day i got my job offer at uh, my first job offer actually got two that day so once one was at lawrence livermore national labs and that spoke to my heart because it was similar to my grandfather who worked at Oak Ridge National Labs. 
And, and this was on track on the kind of life science. They were wondering how to use MRIs to, to craft 3D models of human skeleton you know, and, and make prosthetics and things like that. A couple hours later, I got another job offer, and that one was in the media entertainment. It was in games. And they wanted to track athletes and actors and put that movement onto digital characters to populate some of the first 3D games. That one was closer, paid a little bit better, and I just jumped down on that track. And at the time, there were two mocap service companies in the world. It was BioVision, where I worked in Acclaim. And that was really, I mean, it was a really nascent period in motion capture. And I ended up running the studio at BioVision and, and working with uh, kind of in-between game teams. And it was usually the very first time they had used this kind of technology. They had a lot of questions about it. And then I was kind of in between them and the athletes and actors. And it was my experience as an athlete, I think, that helped me relate to the, the performers and my experience as a technologist that helped me relate to the, the game teams. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I worked on some some really great projects uh, when I was there. But it was a it was about a year later when Lucasfilm called, and they said, "Hey, we're we're planning a new space opera, uh, you know, trilogy based on Star Wars." At the time, no one really knew about it. It had been about thirty years since uh, the Star Wars movie had been out, and um, they knew they needed to populate thousands and thousands of uh, shots with digital characters and didn't quite know how to do it and were building up a motion capture department and at that time in this very small industry i was one of the experts in that field and uh ended up joining ilm this is probably 96 97 something like that and yeah what a fantastic opportunity i mean ilm's today and and also 25 years ago full of just incredibly smart gifted people all working on uh, these incredible projects and I had an opportunity to kind of build up that department uh, with a handful of other talented people uh, from ground up and also expand my interests, not only from like computer graphics and human movement to, but also to like computer vision projects. So in addition to working on uh, Star Wars films and Harry Potter, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, other, other projects like that, we were, we were sort of the hardware side, the, the real world side of the R&D department. So as ILM's R&D department was innovating and crafting new technology around computer graphics, anytime there was a computer vision problem, anytime you had to understand the real world, you wanted to create a, a digital double of, a, of an actor so that the digital character would look identical, or you wanted to create a 3D model of a physical prop that was made in the in the, the art department. Um, that's where we came in. And we worked on a lot of technologies around what I call perceptual computing, around computers understanding the physical world. And so my, my interest expanded uh, during that, that period. Can you tell me a little bit more about perceptual computing? And like also, what was it like working on some of those like household names in respect to Harry Potter, Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean? What, was, what were those days like? Well, it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, Star Wars, we had to be ultra secret about it. We couldn't tell anyone uh, what we were working on, even our family. And luckily, my my uh, girlfriend, now wife, also worked at Lucasfilm as well. She she managed the art department and animatics group. So we were able to have a lot of fun conversations so I could talk to someone about what I was doing. But otherwise, it was quite secretive. Yeah, I got a chance to work with, like, so Pirates, um, Parts of the Caribbean, I got a chance to work with uh, Johnny Depp, for instance. I uh, worked with several other actors as well. And it was fun to see how good some actors are, how personable some actors are as well. Uh, and to see different parts of the process in creating a visual effects film. Uh, there's a lot of talented people that go into that. And perceptual computing, kind of tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's uh, basically computers understanding the, the physical world. And so it's usually using cameras. I mean, it's in your, it's in your mobile phone now. The, the sensor that uh, allows your phone to know if you're holding it in portrait or uh, landscape is a little uh, IMU that measures rotation. It is sensing something in the real world. The depth sensor that Apple uses for Face ID to allow you to log into your, your phone, that, that's 
perceiving the real world. And so uh, it's increasingly become a part of our daily lives. If you look at the, the push into self-driving cars, massive use of perceiving the real world and making decisions on a very fast basis. And a lot of these have long been science fiction, you know, things that, that, that seemed possible, but were extremely hard. And it wasn't until, you know, some of them, the technology still being developed. Uh, and there's huge advancements around AI now that are really pushing that ability for computers to understand uh, the world around them. A lot of focus has been placed upon AI recently in respect to OpenAI, ChatGPT, and their wider implications in respect to the challenges that it potentially creates and also opportunities as well. Touching on your experience, what are your viewpoints in respect to AI now and also where we potentially go in the future ahead? Yeah, I got interested in AI more in depth, maybe four or five years ago, and actually joined an AI startup. We were leveraging uh, machine learning in particular to create from a single photograph, a uh, 3D avatar that was customized to a particular person, sort of looked like a DreamWorks style avatar. And then we could bring it to life from audio or text. And that was a really interesting technology. We ended up exiting to Roblox right before their IPO. And it appears that that's, this is going to be their new avatar system, allowing the, the kids to sort of showcase what they look like in avatar form as they, as they play the game. And, I, you know, I like to think back. If you'd taken someone from 200 years ago and then dropped them into today, you know, 200 years ago, we didn't have electricity. We didn't have uh, manufacturing. We didn't have tel telecommunications. The types of tech that we have today would bewilder uh, anyone from 200 years ago. We're at a point right now that that same bewilderment might impact us 10 years from now. And it's remarkable. I think that AI could have the same impact on society that electricity did. And so it, it can definitely be used as a method for good, or it could be used to the detriment of society. And I think it's up to technologists, founders, and also the government to, to build technology and to manage technology in a way that benefits society. Whether we have this utopian future or dystopian future ahead of us, I think depends largely on what we do as a society. And actually, just um, just before our call today, uh, the EU passed one of the largest restrictions around AI use. And I haven't had a, a thorough uh, ability to dissect what was passed today, but um, I definitely believe that it is something that needs to be managed and regulated on a government perspective. And if we want it to be used for a force of good, that um, we need to take careful note of how it's being used. Sure. Now, that being said, AI itself isn't intelligent. It's just being trained on a host of data. And there are some people who think that AI is, is going to put the humans to the point of extinction. Uh, I'm really not worried about that sort of thing, barring you know common sense and how we apply this kind of technology to the world. Uh, it would be a shame that, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that if we've moved into sort of this big, big brother version of the world where a handful of individuals or corporations have profited from the use of AI at the detriment of all the rest of us, yeah. that, uh, that something's watching us at all given times, you know, perceiving what we do and every action that we do, that would be very unfortunate. And I think that would have been uh, a disaster for society. On the other side, on the utopian side, it's very easy to imagine a world in which information and ability is at our fingertips, that, that us as humans can exist with, with fantastic ability to engage with one another, to get information, and potentially not to have to work very much, but live uh, a great lifestyle. That's the, that's the version of the future I'd like to see. Yeah, me too. I, I think it's... That's why it's so important at the moment to reflect and also to educate. AI to me isn't something that's going to steal people's jobs. It's it's like yet another 
age of evolution, like similar to what we saw in the industrial age and previous ages prior to that. Like when we see advancement, naturally we advance with the advancement that falls upon us. And I think that that's what I want to see take place. I want to see people understand the possibilities of the technology that we have at our fingertips at the moment, but equally use it in such a way that benefits society as a whole. Because if you look at my, I was chatting about this the other day and I was saying, if you look at the world's most pressing problems that we face, we have the ability to utilize technology to kind of alleviate these grand um, global society issues. And that is a real opportunity because it's about becoming more conscious. I would say like being the ancestors, our future descendants need like being more responsible in our actions today. So we, we allow for our children to inherit a better, better and brighter future. And I think if we can do that, then yeah, like, the utilization of technology, the understanding of the society and globalized world that we live in, there's so much opportunity there. Yeah, I agree. The, the opportunity is incredible. I, I do have some differences in, in viewpoints, though. I do think that a lot of jobs will be impacted um, both positively and negatively. And if you look at the advancement of technology across time, you know, for instance, when the, the telephone came out, there used to be a you know huge army of people who who were telephone operators who would kind of connect a switchboard switchboard to connect one call to another. Um, that job's largely gone away with automation. And similar to that, we're going to see a number of roles that are going to change, that are going to be impacted by AI. But like that time period in which we automated the switchboard, there were new jobs that came up that, you know, that were more, that were more interesting to people, that were more rewarding to people. And I hope that some of the automation that occurs with AI will allow people more freedom to follow their passions and not just an elimination of people's wealth. Exactly. How do you think it's going to impact like the sectors that you've had a lot of special speciality within being um, games and movies? Yeah, I think there's a lot of areas for creative people to be more efficient and to realize their creativity in ways that they couldn't before. I think we'll see in the game world, I think we'll see fantastic worlds and, and sort of endless games where people can get far more engagement as well as communication with other players. I think all of that will improve significantly. On the film side, I think that the barrier between the indie creators, the kind of creator economy and the high visual effects uh, blockbuster films, I think will shrink. And I think we'll see a number of really innovative uh, young directors and talent be able to showcase their visions of entertainment in a way that uh, just weren't possible without huge budgets uh, and massive kind of visual effects budgets before. Yeah, exactly. I think um, I'm with you on that one. I think it's definitely become an age of accessibility like when technology has advanced to such a stage then it opens up the gateway to all forms of storytellers and i think that that's that's for the that's for the good and bearing in mind especially of the involvement of society over the last couple of years there's so many really engaging detailed narratives to be told and i think that that's only a positive right yeah and what we've seen with uh, tiktok and youtube is that there's a whole huge culture of creativity that has, that has come up. And you look at the level of quality of, of individuals who produce content, it's quite incredible. Even the growth in the last five years is, has been amazing. And so to provide them tools to enable that create creativity to jump another level, I think is, is gonna be wonderful. Around about the time that we're recording this, it's not too long since Apple launched their Vision Pro. I'd love to get your take on those. Yeah, you know, my first use of VR was back in the late 90s. We had developed some of the, or maybe the first real-time motion capture on a film set, and this was for uh, The Mummy Returns. And it was a, a way that the director could see an actor in a motion capture suit composited against some pre-recorded film of live action. And it was, it was quite interesting to see a, a visual effects character interact with the live performer 
but the actor themselves didn't really have any feedback. They were acting in this big empty room. And we wondered if using a VR headset might enable the actor to understand what the CG environment was around them. And at the time, the technology just wasn't there. The headsets were $150,000. They're you know, heavy, big, huge latency. It just, it just wasn't, uh, wasn't ready. Fast forward to 2012, 2013, uh, maybe 20, even 2015, I guess, with the Oculus uh, DK1 announcement. Yeah. And that was sort of the next wave of excitement around VR. Certainly, I even had a VR um, startup that I created to enable people to walk around a physical space and interact with physical objects in a social environment. But what they saw in VR was uh, was a game-like experience in a virtual world, and it was it was incredible, incredible experience for for people to go through this. And also kind of brought a sense of community and togetherness. It got people off the couch. You know, a lot of people at the time played video games kind of sitting on the couch. I wanted to get them active, get them social, bring them together. Um, and so I crafted a, a, a startup kind of around that experience. But here we are years later. That was, say, 10 years ago, five, eight years ago. Now Apple's launched a product that essentially is a VR headset. That's certainly not how they're proposing it. I, and I enjoyed the positioning in which they had for the product. They, they didn't mention VR at all. They didn't talk about the metaverse. They really, you know, Apple's the best consumer uh, company in the world. And they really focused it on kind of consumer use cases, how people might want to engage, how they might want to socialize with one another. A couple times they talked about it as an AR device, but really they use the term spatial computing and it's that understanding the physical world around you and it engaging with you as well. I think that's what they meant by that term. Overall, I think the product is quite incredible. If you look at the amount of technology itself, I mean, there's besides the keyboard, you've got a MacBook Pro with a significant number of additional sensors, more cameras, more LiDAR. I mean, uh, eye tracking, all of this embedded into a single device that's both wearable, mobile, uh, not too hot, you know, can can operate for a couple hours from a, a technology perspective. It's incredible what they've done. From an impact on society, it remains to be seen whether uh, this third wave of VR, this third wave of wearable spatial computing, will will be the one that sticks. Um, but I'm certainly excited about getting my hands on one of them and and putting it through its paces. I'm also excited about the types of founders and innovators who are thinking about what types of experiences should go on that device. It's really going to be incredible what we see over the next handful of years. You know, similar to the Apple Watch, it, it wasn't until V6 that I actually purchased a watch myself. Um, but, you know, Apple Watch number one was, a, you know, definitely mint uh, met uh, consumer expectations. There were a lot of people that used it. iPhone one didn't even have copy paste. If you think about that, that wasn't part of the minimal viable product for the first iPhone. But fast forward today, and it's immensely useful. It's replaced a significant number of dedicated single-use hardware devices out there. It's added a lot of connectivity and value to our day-to-day -day lives. And so it's quite possible that Maybe by version two, version three, version four, when the form factor becomes smaller, when the social use and societal implications of wearing something on your face becomes more acceptable, and when it is proliferated with a number of new apps and experiences that can enrich our daily lives, I think it could be quite powerful. It's interesting because when I looked at it, I, I was looking at it and... Um... They had announced it a little while ago that they were expecting to sell it for retail it for about three thousand dollars, and then they released and it was it's about like three four nine nine or something like that. Yeah, so it's a little bit more expensive. But then that price point is kind of factored in to the fact that it's not the finished article, and it's more so for it does feel a little bit like a sandbox, an expensive sandbox experience to um, provide it out to community and people within society to kind of feedback some of those early viewpoints as to what it may hold. I think one of the things, you know, we, we, we were chat, we've chatted a little bit 
and mention society here and there, but like, where do you stand on the societal implications of the speed of technological advancement? Well, that's a, a really good question. And certainly technology that changes faster than society can adapt it often doesn't take hold. It, it doesn't get roots with people, with users. I, I myself have four kids and um, quite honestly, the world's changing so fast now. Um, one of my one of my children, one of my kids just graduated high school last week. I, I don't know what kind of jobs are going to be there 10 years from now. I don't know. I don't know what she's going to do in the world. I, I would love to see that technology support our children and support our planet, our climate as well, such that they have a better world ahead of them that's more beneficial, that they've got more opportunities, that they can live a more passionate, balanced life. Uh, and I hope that every generation ahead can can leverage that and, and and benefit from it as well. So I guess, like, how does the work that you do today in respect to your personal desire to drive that impactful change, how does that implicate and work into maybe the, the firms that you support, the, the projects you get involved in, that decision-making process? Well, I try to use my daily job as something to better the world. And I think that venture capital can be a force for good, that uh, we can foster and support the types of founders and innovators and technology that's being developed to benefit the world, as opposed to just look at profit. And there's a balance between those things. I mean, as a, as a, as a VC, I, I, I've got a, a profit desire as well for my investors. But but more than that, more important than just making a buck is like, what what is the society? What is the world that we live, uh, leave behind us? And maybe more than any other role outside of government, I think the role that I'm in now can be a facilitator for good because it can impact and accelerate so many companies and so many founders that have that vision, that have that desire to improve the world. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I guess like the cool thing about VC as well is when you are making that decision point, you know, you must be given so many different opportunities to invest in companies, but Likewise, an idea is only as good as the people behind that idea. So the the people factor must be a big driving point in who you invest in and support, right? Uh, it's definitely a big part of it. And with some of the potential negative consequences of technology, it's also their ethical desire, their go-to-market, how they're thinking about 
how technology will impact the world. So it's it's a little bit about who the founder is. It's a little bit about what their vision is. It's a little bit about how they want to bring it to society. And it's a lot of mixed signal information that you have to process and, and think about. So harking back to earlier on in the conversation where you talked about like you, your 15-year foresight in, into what you expected to eventuate, what do you believe the next 15 years hold? I don't know if that's quite possible to predict the next 15 years. Just like uh, someone 200 years ago couldn't predict what life might be today, the challenge of predicting the next 15 years is far harder than it was back in 1995 when I predicted it. And that was a time the, you know, the internet had just really come to the public uh, a year earlier. And so there was a lot of change happening during that time period. So it's amazing to think about the rate of change is changing itself. It's constantly accelerating. But what we see is we look back, you know, we look back at the last 15 years, we look at the how much change and transformation has happened during that 15 year time period. And we think that the future is going to be the same way that 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 rate of change is going to be flat. But the rate is actually changing itself. And so to predict 15 years out is, is really quite challenging now. You know, I'm, I kind of have that 10-year vision of what society might be. And even that is really, really challenging. And so what I look at today is I try to look at problems, problems that technology could solve, ways that we can improve the world sort of five to 10 years out. How could technology, how could startups, you know, improve that world over that time period? And then maybe what their impact might be further out. But honestly, it gets really fuzzy really quick. And it's it's as much an art as a science. I agree with you on the speed of change, like things that historically, if you look back to say the 80s, 90s, things that could have taken place over a 15-year duration today, it's two, three. Well, look at the last six months have been insane, actually. I mean, what we've seen, I, I remember going at Thanksgiving. I was over at a friend's house. His daughter is an amazing artist, incredible artist. She's 13 years old, but draws at the level of uh, almost a professional concept artist. And I remember thinking, and this was just days after like Stable Diffusion, Dolly, you know, things had launched. Most people didn't know anything about 2D art generative uh, AI systems. And I remember thinking about how the future might change for her. And here we are six months later and generative AI is kind of in the lexicon of uh, yeah. most common people. You know, think of what the next six months is gonna provide and what kind of change we're gonna see there. And it's almost hard to imagine what's gonna happen during that time period. I think it's it's really interesting to look at because when you look at things like Midjourney, for example, the change between like the the last update has just been like through the roof. It's just it's night and day, and what you're able to create there, like I, I use it as a sandbox, right? So I'm playing around with it quite frequently because I'm interested and I'm interested in what what you can do and what prompts can um, generate. And I grew up in a Lake District, right? So I'm always prompting about things and areas that I grew up to, grew up in, and living close to the lakes and things like Lake Windermere. I was astounded by the quality that you can create now through Mid Journey. So you know, like touching upon artists and even things like the World Photography Awards and things like it. Like it's just crazy. You can literally put in there a camera that you're using, a type of you know shot, a lens, and I don't know how that will interconnect because you don't want to lose the skill and craft of somebody that has that ability. But then equally, from an advancement perspective, it's it's just mind blowing. Yeah, and that's the world we live in now. How how do we? How do we leverage people's talents and their ability and, and provide them an opportunity to pursue their passions and at the same time manage technology and its impact on the world? And it's not always clear. It's a gray area that, that we're entering in a, a, a time of rapid change. I think the world's going to be very different 
a decade from now uh, than it is today. And I think that's like back to what you're saying about the role of government. It It's so key that they understand the lay of the land in front of them because rather than what we like what we see in a lot of countries uk included it's it's kind of this reactionary response to some something that's happened on that day or some stupidity act of stupidity that's that's occurred and it's taken their gaze away from what's really important and like that is technology and i think where you know some of the challenges like if you look in the uk at the moment we've got huge waiting lists in respect to patient care and from an ai perspective there's so much scope and opportunity to leverage from that point to allow for the support of society a lot of it comes down to leadership and a lot of it comes down to people that have the ability to look forwards rather than backwards all the time and um that's what one of my biggest concerns is the fact that are the right leaders in place to really understand the challenges that are, that are in front of them? I don't well, we're making our first steps. You know, it's it's in discussion now, both in the U.S. and Europe. I think uh, Europe's really leading this discussion and really thinking hard about it. You've got the, the CEO of OpenAI who actually went before Congress and suggested that there be more legislation and control and management around this technology. And, and that's happening not just at OpenAI, but with a lot of different uh, countries that are, excuse me, companies that are building technology. And so it's good that there's support between both technologists and founders in government to look at legislation and how, how can we ensure that this technology that's being built can be used for the betterment of society. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. It's going to have to be dynamic. It's going to have to change significantly. And it's going to be something we have to think about a lot over the coming years. But it's it started and it's being taken seriously. I think what's more important is that when we get to a generalized AI, you know, not just sort of a narrow Narrow use cases for AI, I think there's quite a, a lot of value that can come from those. But when we get to sort of this generalized, you know, autonomous thinking AI, that's when we have to be really careful. And it was, you know, just a year ago, most people in the AI community considered that 50 years away. A few months ago, they were thinking 20 years away. And then and there's some, you know, even some developer at uh, Google recently thought that it already had happened on a product he's working on. And so that's that's happening quick. And I think it's important that we regulate, that we look at how to ensure this is being used well. What's your, what's your viewpoint of that letter that's going around? Because there's a lot of, um, you know, fairly high esteemed people that have even left positions due to their fear of, of the future ahead. And also people that are kind of raising the alarm at the moment via like a I can't remember how many it's garnered, but it's quite a lot of people that have signed that letter. Yeah, a few months ago, there was a letter going out saying, you know, we have to stop AI completely. And, and honestly, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's kind of impossible now. A lot of the, this technology is available and then the open source community is being worked on by engineers all over the world. And there will be, even if you regulate it in certain Western countries, it's, it's going to go unregulated in others. And it's really just kind of impossible to do that at this point. So I don't think it can be stopped. And it's not, it's not going to be stopped. It's here. And I think it's more important for us to look at ways that it can be used for good mm. as opposed to completely stop it. Yeah, I think it's, it's also an understanding as well, like things where you do see some countries like Harker to an individualistic nationalized viewpoint, almost like if you work within a large company, like that siloed mentality right where you've got these little silos that are kind of doing their own thing i think that there, there does need to be some form of collective governance to understand and like regulate properly and also i think also because it's still being built we still have a real good opportunity to build the foundations on values on a, on a real value system of, of how we design and how we um, deliver and execute and i think that 
that's this is the stuff that really intrigues me, right? It's it's the conversations that are taking place today and the the companies that are going to be founded and the businesses that are going to kind of develop from this period of disruption in the exact same way as if you look back to the age of how the games industry evolved over the years. It's like disruption is a positive catalyst for change. That's the intriguing factor for me. It's like the conversations that are going to take place today and, and how they are ultimately going to shape society as a whole. That's that's the thing that's interesting. And I also think it has to be done in a way that um, where there's not a digital divide. So, you know, you see large parts of Africa, for example, that aren't, don't even have access to the internet. And I, I want to see less of a digital divide. So everybody has an opportunity to thrive and prosper, I guess. Yeah, on the same time, you see some of these third world countries that have leapfrogged several layers of technology that the Western world went through. And, and so there is an opportunity for technology and innovation to help kind of level out that playing field to provide information equally among people. And I think we'll see a lot of advancement in third world countries in the coming years to allow information and knowledge to be shared uh, and experienced more freely and equally with the Western world. I mean, the fact that you and I here, you were on two different continents right now, communicating live uh, over the internet. I mean, even that concept, um, you know, 15 years ago was sort of, well, maybe 20 years ago, was sort of unfathomable. And it's amazing that, um, that, that this type of technology enables connection between people, it enables us to, to know one another better, to, to understand the world a little bit better. And uh, if we use technology that's being built today to even increase that, there's a lot of ways we can improve the, the world. If you had like, you know, obviously we've talked about how the speed of change occurs dramatically quicker these days versus what it's done in the past. What would you say are the biggest opportunities in the foreseeable future and also the immediate challenges and and what types of industry businesses would you like to see come to the fore well i think the uh, there's opportunity around um the medical field that could be quite interesting the the ability to get assistance whether that's a, a physical illness or injury or a mental illness as well that uh, technology exists now and products can exist in the short-term future that help eliminate depression anxiety that uh, allow you to be serviced more quickly for medical professionals, or at least uh, a technology that's that's uh, been trained on medical professional information. And I think so. I think there's a a big opportunity for good there. It doesn't necessarily replace the role of a doctor, but that access to information, that access to assistance, can be at our fingertips. And of course, that's going to benefit the vast majority of of humans as well. Um, so I think that's one area that we'll see a lot of improvement and a lot of benefit and a lot of change. It's also going to happen in the legal profession and, you know, the business profession, the ability to kind of work through documents to understand legal documents and to prepare them more quickly. I think there's going to be a lot of change there. In fact, most white collar jobs that have information at the source of that role will see some change uh, and acceleration to the the users of that information what about challenge because you know we're we're both fathers right so like what are the immediate challenges that you foresee for our children well we've just come out of sort of the social media decade and i think what we've seen is that the data that we pushed out into the world is actually being leveraged maybe against us um, you know, I think it wasn't until recently that people began to understand that by using social media, that they actually are the they are the product. That you know what appears to be freely communicated to others is actually being leveraged to to understand and sell uh, to them as consumers. And I think that now, now that AI is that that information is more easily digested, understood, associated that uh, the fear I have is that the information we've put out in the world can actually be, can be used to harm us. And so for kids, I think, especially kids today that have grown up 
on a device. They've grown up connected to one another. They, they sort of readily give away their privacy. Uh, what I worry is that that's going to come back to haunt them, that they won't have the ability to sort of be independent, to be unknown. And I think that could be to the detriment of society. That's what I worry about with my children. Um, I really have grown my children to appreciate nature, to get out into the physical world, to, to engage off of technology and to understand the, the beauty of nature and to appreciate the, the planet that we're on and the, the, the other animals and people that we inhabit it with. And I think we have to balance technology with, uh, you know, with the, the natural world as well. There's a lot to be said about like the epidemic of isolation and there's a, you know, like rising stats around addictions and, um, we as individuals have to pick that apart, right? It's not necessarily as the wider society. It's actually our own usage, our own day-to-day -day lives. Like how do we make sure that we find that balance? Yeah, so true. Like, I could talk to you all day because I find what you do absolutely fascinating. But I just want to finish out with one last question, and that would be your closing point, your key thought and takeaway that you'd like to leave with our audience. Well, I'd say follow your passions. Find what makes you tick internally. Pursue it rigorously. Look for ways to leverage it to benefit others in the community or in the world. And accept that change is going to happen, that the world that you entered into when you were born is going to be very different than the world that um, you leave when you, when, you know, on your end days. And just embrace it and encourage it to be better amazing it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and yeah thank you very much for your time yeah my pleasure thank you for listening to the purpose made podcast don't forget to subscribe to purpose made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views you can also find and follow us on instagram linkedin and twitter or contact peter directly to connect inquire about purpose made or request to be featured on the podcast we look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 